Franklin brings her home her uh, fiancé to meet her parents. After dinner, her mother tells her father to find out about the young man, so the father invites the fiancé into his study for a man-to-man sit-down talk. So what are your plans, son? The father asked the young man. He says, I'm a Bible student. He said, oh, a Bible student, that's admirable, but what will you do to provide a nice house for my daughter to live in as she's accustomed to? He said, well, I will study hard, sir, and God will provide for us. He says, well, how will you buy her a beautiful engagement ring such as the one that she deserves? He says, I'll concentrate on my studies, and God will provide for us. And what about children? How will you support them? He said, don't worry, sir. God will provide. The conversation proceeds this way, and each and every time the man asks the young man how he will provide for his daughter, he says, God will provide. So as he goes to speak to his wife later that evening, she said, honey, how did the conversation go? He said, well, he has no job. He has no plans. But the good news is, he thinks I'm God. <laughs> well, happy Father's Day. You know, but I was, it, just on a, a much more serious note, um, we will never be, as men, we will never be God. But it is God's hope and desire for each one of us as men to reflect his image and his glory to those around us. We should, be, we should be a reflection of God to our wives, to our children, to the business community. Wherever God has us, we should reflect his glory and his image. And we shouldn't take that responsibility lightly. And we're going to discuss more of that as we continue in our study in the book of Romans. But many of us have heard or made such statements such as, Oh, I've been dying to do that, this, or I've been dying to go there. I've been dying to see that movie. I've been dying to get a good steak. I've been dying to get out and play some golf. I've been dying to go to a play. I've been dying to do whatever. And we've made statements such as that. And in a similar way, in our ongoing study through the book of Romans, we've come to a passage uh, where we learn that all who have come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and in his finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead for the forgiveness of sin are to be dying to live. And not just dying to live according to how we would like to live, but to be dying to live the Christian life. We should be dying to live the life that God has called us to live. And as we go through this particular chapter, we're going to see more about how that's to take place. But we've learned to date that we, that we who had been dead in Adam through faith are now alive in Jesus Christ. Remember, as we've gone through the book of Romans, God gave us an illustration of Sarah's womb. And her dead womb could not produce life, and neither Abraham, who was equally dead, but through her faith and Abraham's faith, we're told in the promises of God, in the specific promise of God that they would have a, a child, there came life. And that's in Romans 4, verses 1 through 22. We who have been dead, but now that we have believed in Christ, we've become alive out of the dead womb of humanity, so to speak. And we saw that in chapters 4, verse 23, through chapter 5, verse 21. As Christians, we're to be alive to God and dead to sin. And in Romans chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles, we find ourselves at a turning point in the study of the book of Romans. If you recall up to this point, basically what God has done is identify for all of us a very serious problem, and that is the, the, the problem or the, the reality that all of humanity is born dead in Adam. We have a congenital birth defect. We all come into the world with sinners stamped upon our very soul. And, without, and therefore, we're separated from God. And uh, we are dead in our sin, the Bible says. 
But for those who believe God and recognize what he says to be true, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, there's nobody perfect, none of us. You know, in fact, in any conversation that you have with anyone, I have never met anyone who believes that they're perfect. They always justify themselves, and I can remember a day in my life where I did the same thing. Well, you know what, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. And if I compare myself to others that I know, somewhere I'm going to fall on a scale that has to be acceptable to God. And I've always been able to beat that curve in any uh, academic course that I've ever taken. And I've always been on the, this side of the bell curve and everything's always worked out okay. But God's saying is, no, you know what? None of, the, none of us are perfect. None of us are righteous. We all fall short of the glory of God. And we're all dead in Adam. We come into the world born dead. Psalm 51, King David said, in, in his uh, mother's womb, he was conceived in iniquity. And that he was born into this world as sinner, separated from the life of God. And so he's been identifying the problem. He tells us the solution is to believe what God says in his word. That all are dead, but any who come to, to faith and trust in the finished work of Christ who died upon the cross for the sins of the world, for all who believe, he was raised from the dead three days later, indicating he has the power to give eternal life to those who ask and come to him and ask for forgiveness, the Bible says from that moment on we're born again, that we become a child of God to those who believe in his name. There's nothing any of us can do. It's God's grace by which we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift that's offered from God to all who would accept that gift. At that point in our life, we become alive to God and dead to sin. We are new creatures. Old things pass away. All things become new. And there's a new way that we're to live our life from the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We're never to be the same again. And Paul in Romans chapter 6 introduces us to this theme, and the theme is this, and that is if we're supposed to be different as Christians, and before I gave my life or before I asked Christ to come into my life for the forgiveness of my sins, the problem that I had with Christians were that the people that I saw, there was so much what I would call hypocrisy in their life, I didn't really understand what it meant to be a Christian. Because as I watched them live their life, I thought, well, they're doing a lot of the things that I'm doing, and I don't really understand what the difference is. Therefore, if they're a Christian, I must be a Christian because, after all, I do believe in God. And that, you know, and that to me, is all that it meant to be a Christian. And so there wasn't any clear identification of, wow, their life is so different. There's something attractive about it that would cause me to ask the question, wow, I mean, what's going on? Or at least to be interested enough to know what's going on. Remember, Jesus said that as believers, we're to be salt in the world, salt and light. And light will do one of two things. It'll attract people. If you've ever driven down the street and you see lights in the distance and you see maybe it's a car dealership that's having some, sh uh, you know, some special deal or, or you know, they've got spotlights or floodlights for the opening of a mall, a grand opening, or you go and you see in the distance the stadium's all lit up and you're attracted to it as, oh, there must be an event at the stadium or there must be something special going on over there. There's something about light that'll attract us to it. But there's also something about light that will cause us to want to, uh, to, to, uh, to move away from it. And Jesus said the world hated that Jesus was the light who entered in the world, and the world hated Jesus Christ because Jesus is the light of the world. It shines in darkness, and the darkness couldn't stand the light. And the reason the world can't stand the light and the reason that Jesus just causes people to cringe and the hair stand up on the back of their neck is because, see, God is such an elusive concept that you can say, well, I want to give credit to God, and everybody claps and goes, yes, that's great. But when somebody says, I want to praise Jesus, the hair on the back of people's neck stand out. 
Why? Because Jesus said there's only one way to heaven, and that's through him. There's only one way to the Father, and that's belief in his death upon the cross for your sin and my sin. And those who believe have eternal life, and those who don't will be eternally separated from God. And he cuts out all the, the, uh, the, the illusion of just so many different ways to get to heaven. And it causes people to cringe. Why? Because Jesus said the light came into the world, and it shined in the darkness, and the darkness hated the light. Why? Because their deeds they were evil. See, and I can recall days when we would be at a party and we would be some, doing something that we shouldn't have been doing and the lights were out and things were going on that shouldn't have been going on, but they were anyway. And somebody walks in not knowing, they flip the light on, man. You'd never hear so many people scream to shut out the light. See, that's the world we live in today. The world wants to shut out the light so that we can continue as humanity to live in the way that we want to live and rejecting the authority of God in our life. See, light attracts, but it also repulses. The Bible says we're to be salt, and salt should cause an appetite or a thirst for what we see. And it was only until I met people who were living, quote, the Christian life, that I became thirsty or had an appetite or was attracted to find out what it was that was different about them than any other Christian that I'd ever met. And so as we look at this, this turning point in the book of Romans, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. And, and, and what he's saying and what he's addressing is very simple, and that is this. If we are dead to sin and alive to God, why is it that we so often continue as if it's not the case? Why is it that it's so often that Christians who say they've come to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins continue to live any way that they want and somehow cop an attitude that, you know what, but hey, you know, I'm saved by grace, it's through faith, and, and, and it's not my works, and it doesn't matter how I live my life, so what difference does it make? And that's the theme that he addresses when he says this in verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin so that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He brings up the subject of life or death. This is a topic of life and death. This is a topic of extreme urgency. When somebody says, this is, a, it, it, this is a, an issue of life or death, you'd think we'd pay attention to it. He brings up the subject of life and death again. He says, we've been reconciled to God by Christ's death. We'll be saved by his life. And that's in chapter 5, verse 10. We were enemies. We're reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, now we shall be saved by his life. He says, we were dead in Adam... For those of us who believed in Christ, we become alive in Christ. Adam died, sin came into the world, all have died and are sinners because of him. Now Jesus Christ comes into the world, he dies on the cross, and for those who believe in his death as a provision for their sins, the Bible says we can be made alive through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's an issue of life or death. And so the question that he's saying is, if you've identified yourself and trusted in Christ, you're dead to sin, how do you keep living as if that hasn't happened in your life? And the, and the answer is an emphatic one that we see in verse 2, and look what he says. What he's saying is, Paul is saying to each one of us that it's no little or flippant thing to sin after we become a Christian. It's no little minor thing to continue to live a life as though we've never come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He said, this is a very serious matter. And all we have to do is look. And you know what just breaks my heart? We had a friend in over, the, over a couple of days uh, from Colorado who works with a, um, a group that helps um, um, finance church expansion. And, you know, we were going through this long list of people that we know who are involved in, quote, spreading the gospel. 
organizations, not only, quote, churches, but also parachurch, what they call outside organizations, ministries that are committed to telling people the good news that God loves people, that people are separated from God because of sin, but he's provided a remedy, and that's he sent Jesus Christ into the world to die for for them on the cross. For whoever believes shall be saved. Whoever believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. I mean, that's the mission, that's the message that we've been entrusted as far as uh, salvation is concerned. What broke my heart was as we were discussing this to realize if as many people who claim to be Christians really are Christians would live in a manner that's worthy of the calling by which we've been called or live the way that God says that he wants us to live once we've come to faith in Christ, our nation would not be in the mess that it's in today. There's too many people who stamp an easy believism onto, I prayed a prayer, I went down in front, I did this, I did that, whatever it is, but there's no life change. And my concern for all of us is this. Jesus warned that there were many who would claim to have known him, but in the end time judgment, they're going to stand before him and he's going to say, I didn't know you. I never knew you. Be gone from before me, and he'll cast them into eternity in a place that the Bible calls the lake of fire we call hell for, for, forever and ever. Now, what concerns me is this. Who are those people? Because I've never met or talked to anybody yet who has said, hey, maybe I'm not really a believer. Maybe I've never really come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Maybe I've just negotiated with God or I you know, made some deal with him. I was talking this week to a guy that, that said the same thing. He said, in 1991, he said, my business was just falling apart. He had lost $4 million. Everything was falling apart in his life. He came home, and the first time he ever shared anything that was going on in his household, he shared with his wife. And his wife said, you know what? I'm not worried about the money. I'll go get a job. We'll do whatever we have to do. We'll pay those people back. He, she said, but you know what? But you need to get down on your knees, and you need to ask God for forgiveness, and you need to invite Jesus Christ into your life because you are lost, and God wants to use this as an opportunity to bring you to himself. He said he got down on his knees, and he started to negotiate with God. Well, Lord, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. God, if you do this, I'll do that. And he started negotiating. And what he didn't realize is that God doesn't negotiate. It's his terms or none at all. It's God's way or no way. It's God's way or, as we say, the highway. And the highway, in this case, leads to hell. We either come to God on his terms or we don't come at all. Six years later, he was sitting here. And it was the first time in his life that the Spirit of God convicted his heart. And he came to God on his terms. And he invited Jesus Christ into his life. And he shared that story with me. And what was exciting to me was the fact that, you know what, if somebody would ask him, hey, in 1991, he said, I prayed a prayer. Because, but you know what, he knew about the prayer he prayed was the same thing God knew about the prayer. That is, it wasn't a prayer of repentance. It wasn't a prayer of brokenness. It wasn't a prayer of humbleness. It wasn't a prayer of coming to God on his terms. It was negotiating with God and seeing what kind of deal we could cut. I can remember years of doing that in my life. God, if you do this for me, I swear I'll start to go to church every week. If this happens, if I get out of this mess again, you'll see me on Sunday. You know, and it's how foolish we are. But see, that what he's saying is it's a matter of life or death. He's saying with an emphatic uh, answer and response, shall we continue to live in sin so that God can somehow continue to forgive us and we can experience his grace. And here are the answers emphatically. The New American Standard says, may it never be. The New International Version says, by no means. The Amplified, certainly not. The King James, God forbid. 
The New Believer's Bible says, of course not. And lastly, in one of my favorite translations, it's the Brooklyn, New York Living Bible. <laughs> and it goes something like this. What, are we stupid or something? <laughs> anyway, I, I can understand that. I mean, seriously, think about it. I mean, don't you just, sometimes it's just like, what are we, what are we stupid? It's like, Chuck, do you think you could keep living any way that you want and somehow accurately reflect what I've done in your life? It's like, what are you, stupid? Well, nah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I'm ignorant, and I'm ignorant of what the Bible teaches as far as how we're to live a life after we've come to faith in Christ. See, but I want you to notice that Paul identifies himself, and the good news is this. Paul says, what shall we continue to live in sin? I like that. And I'll tell you why I like that. Because Paul identifies himself with his reader. Paul identifies himself with the listener. Paul puts himself in the same category as everybody else. You know, we've got this thing in Christendom where we try to elevate certain people above everybody else. Let's just simplify something here. You're either in or you're out. You're a saint or you ain't. That's it. That comes from that New York, Brooklyn version again. But uh, a lot of good stuff in there. Um, but the point is, is that you're either in or you're out. You either have come to faith in Christ or you haven't. You're either dead in Adam or alive in Christ. That's it. Those are the only two choices. It's that simple. But what he's saying is that shall we continue to live in sin? What he's saying is that he's identifying himself with the problem. And the problem is this. Even though we have come to faith, and this from Romans 6 on through the end of the passage, or the end of the, end of the study, is going to be for people who have come to faith in Christ. And what he's saying is this. I identify myself with all of us, and that is this. And I do too. Shall we continue to live in sin so the grace may increase? God forbid that we would even think that. But what he found himself was in a position oftentimes in life as I find myself, and I'm sure you find yourself. And that is in that unhappy place where we're compromising our faith and we're doing things that are reflective of who we used to be instead of who we are today in Christ. And the struggle was on. A wretched man that I am, Paul would go on to say, who can set me free from this body, this, this, this bond of sin, this living like I used to live instead of like I should be living. And the struggle is on. You know, sometimes the further we get along in our Christian life, we think that we're better than people who are coming along uh, besides us, but they're a little bit further back in their growth. And we think we're better than them. And you know what? We'll never be at a point, don't ever get to a point in your life where you sit in some mighty high tower, ivory tower, condescending upon those who have just come to faith in Christ, who continue to do things that are wrong before God, as if somehow or another you don't have your own struggles of your own. I think the honesty that we can share with one another is how we can find victory through Christ and what we've learned in our, in our journey together as he's taken us and taken us from the point of being born again to the point where he wants us to become more and more like Jesus. And we can start to get prideful and arrogant and boastful in our walk with the Lord that we no longer struggle with what somebody else struggles with. Hey, I don't know about you, but there's a season in life when we start, we struggle with anything. I mean, Satan came back to Jesus after a season and he came to him again and continued to tempt him. And that battle that takes place to do what's right before God or to do that which leads to sin is a constant battle that we will never shake this side of eternity. 
And we need to understand that. Even Daniel, as he prayed in Daniel chapter 9, identified himself with the sins of the people. And there's no record anywhere in Scripture that Daniel did any of the things that the people did. But he said, Lord, forgive us, for we have sinned. And that's a good place to be. Forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive us, this nation who has turned from you. And I include myself in that. Forgive us for doing what we shouldn't be doing. Forgive us for walking from your truth. Forgive us, and we all identify, because you know what? We're just as guilty, even though it's easier to point out those fallings or, or, or shortcomings in the life of others. But you know what? None of us are perfect, and there's areas of our life that we need to be forgiven constantly. Forgive us. See, we need to be dying to live the Christian life. In, in uh, Romans chapter 6, the idea of dying or identifying ourselves with Christ is found all throughout Scripture. In fact, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, this theme of, of personal conduct and holiness or sanctification, which is being separated for God's purposes, is found all throughout the Bible. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It says, And he himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross. See, everything God does has a purpose. Notice the purpose. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. You notice that? There's that subject of death and life again. Life and death. He said the purpose, why Jesus died on the cross and took upon our sin wasn't just so he could die on the cross, but he died on the cross for the purpose that we might die to sin, that he would free you and I who put our faith and trust in him from sin and all that goes along with it. Before I put my faith and trust in Christ, there were things in my life that I continued to do and I hated myself for doing it and I wanted to stop doing it. But I couldn't stop. And the world looks and says, well, you know what, you were just weak. No, let me tell you something. What the Bible teaches is that when we're dead in our sin and we're, and we're captured by sin, that we become a slave to it. And we're enslaved to it. And though we want to try to free ourselves from behavior that's destructive, harmful not only to ourselves but others, we don't want to do it anymore, but we can't help ourselves because we are, we are a slave to sin. See, when Jesus died on the cross, and the subject of Romans 6 ties in with this thought in 1, in 1 Peter 2.24, the reason he died on the cross was so that you and I, who put our faith and trust in him, would be freed from sin, that we'd be dead from sin. Now, it doesn't mean we won't struggle or be tempted to sin, but what, what it means is that it has, no longer has the same power over us that it used to before we trusted in Christ. We have the power through the Spirit of God to live a life that's now pleasing to God because God gives us the strength and the power to do it. He says the reason that he died was so that we might die to sin and notice, and live to righteousness. Jesus came to give us life and to give it abundantly. Man, we walk around sometimes like we're dead. We walk around like Jesus Christ hasn't changed our life. We walk around like we're not forgiven. We walk around like we're defeated. I'm, you know, it's so sad, and there's nothing attractive to the world about Christians who walk around like they've been baptized in vinegar. Praise God, praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Whatever, whatever. You know, we live our life, and I you know it's like the only thing we ever, I mean, sometimes I talk to Christians, it's like the only thing I look forward to is, man, I can't wait to get out of here. You know what? 
I can't wait till God takes you out of here either. Because if you're going to walk around with that kind of attitude, man, there's nothing attractive about that to people around you. Because let me tell you something about a non-believer. They're not in a hurry to leave. They may not like what's going on, but they don't know what's on the other side. God has put the fear of death in the heart of every human being because he wants us to be afraid to die. Because until we come to faith in Christ, when we die in that lost state, we spend an eternity separated from God, and God puts the fear of death in the heart of every non-believer. Before I came to faith in Christ, man, I was deathly afraid to die. I didn't want to die. On my worst day, I didn't want to die. So now you think about Christians who walk around talking about they can't wait to die. That's not real attractive to people around us. Although some of them are thinking, well, I can't wait for you to die either. But what we've got to understand is he wants us to live. But not just live in any way that we want. We're to live for righteousness. And righteousness is just a big word that means this. To live in a right way. To live in a way that's right before God. That's as simple as it gets. We're to die to sin and live in a way that's right before God. Another thought that's similar. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Turn back. All right, now go to Matthew 16, 24. I just love to hear those pages turn. Some of you are going, but I just got there. Matthew 16, 24. Notice what Jesus says. He says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If any man comes after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. See, so many of us look at the Christian life as being something where, you know what, it's like God doesn't want us to have any trials. God doesn't want us to have any tribulation. God doesn't want to have any difficult times in our life. But you know, when he called his disciples, he said that any of you who publicly identify with me, any of you who follow me, any of you who trust in me are going to identify with my death. Because I'm leaving here, and you're going to follow me, and I'm going to go into Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me, and I'm going to die. And you're going to be publicly identified with me every day. The idea of carrying a cross had to do with publicly identifying with the death of Jesus Christ. Somehow God wants us to identify with his death in order that we will live. Not to be ashamed, as we already seen, for I'm confident of this very thing. As he said, as Paul said, I, I am confident of the gospel. I'm excited about the gospel. I'm excited what it does in the lives of people. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a power of God unto salvation for all who believe. To the Jew first, to the Greek man, I'm excited. I'm, I'm confident. I pick up my cross daily. And, and, and what he's saying is that God wants us every day to die to ourselves and to live for God. It's a conscious decision that we make. It is a prayer that each one of us should pray as we get up in the morning. You know what's fascinating is when I first became a Christian, there was a, a preacher that was on the radio that I listened to, and, and, and he had said something that, that changed my life. And I want to share it with you, but I want to use it in, in context of what we're discussing here. But what he said was he used to pray a simple prayer every day. And he said that there would be people that God would bring into his life that he could help. And then there would be people that, that would come into his life that would try to harm him or basically just use him, but they really weren't seeking help. And he said that every day he woke up and he prayed a very simple prayer. 
He said, Lord, help me to know the difference between the two. That's all. The simple prayer, what we can take with us from this day on, is the prayer that as we get up every morning and say this very simple prayer, Lord, today, not my will be done, but yours. That's all. Today I'm going to live for you. I'm going to die to self. But when I die to self, I live for you. I'm dying to live for you. I'm dying to live the life you want me to live. I want you to use me to make a difference. I want to deny myself and all the temptation to do the things that are selfish and pleasing to me that are wrong before you. I want to deny myself. I want to pick up my cross and publicly identify with you. And I'm going to follow you today, no matter where you lead. I'm going to be obedient today. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we might live in a way that's right before God. Don't let his death on the cross be a waste in your life or mine. The Bible says that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, Do you not know that you've been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your bodies here on earth. We're justified by faith, but we're also to live by faith. And as Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live in the flesh today, I live by my faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. See, even if there were no chapter 6 of Romans, these verses together remind us that the Christian life is not just to be an easy thing. You know, we're always to understand that our salvation has nothing to do with our works, uh, but we must never forget that um, having accepted Jesus as our Savior, we have a calling. And the calling is, in this present life, that we're to first die to self and then live to God. Die to sin, live to God. Now the question is, how can we have victory then over the sin that so easily, as Hebrews 12 tells us, so easily entangles us. We're all in the same boat. We all struggle with the same things. Some of us are different than others. But when I'm talking about we all struggle with the same thing, I'm talking about the temptation to sin. Now that sin may manifest itself in different areas of our life. One person may struggle with one thing, another struggle with another. But we all have our struggle that takes place, and that's struggling with sin. So the question really is, how do we find victory or gain victory over sin? And that really is the outline that we're looking at throughout this, this particular chapter. And if you recall, we talked about three words that basically set up the outline back in Romans chapter 6. The first word is that we know. It has to do with understanding truth as God gives it to us. Basic scriptural doctrine, truth, that we're to know it in our mind. Verses 1 through 10 identify this truth. We're also to reckon or consider this in our hearts, which we'll talk about in a second. And the third thing is we're to yield our will, which means we're to be obedient. Once we know these things, consider these things, now we're to go out and live it. And it's a very simple outline, but it's powerful as it, as it has to do with living a life where we can gain victory over the sin that so easily entangles us. The illustration that he gave, if you'll recall, is that of baptism. Look at uh, Romans chapter 6 again. He says, uh, what shall we continue to uh, say? So shall we continue to sin so that grace might increase? May it never be. God forbid. How can you think that way? What, are we stupid? Um, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
The word baptism, as you recall, uh, has to do with there's a literal meaning and there's a figurative meaning. Meaning, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10.2 it says, And we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea has to do with the nation of Israel identified themselves with Moses as their leader when they followed him out of Egypt, went down into the sea, and came out on the other side. It's a picture, a beautiful picture, of baptism that we'll talk about in a second. They followed their leader, they went down, they were buried with him, so to speak. They came out on the other side to a newness of life, a new way of living. Egypt was now behind them. Egypt in Scripture always uh, was a word picture for sin. They left sin behind them, they left oppression behind them, they left servitude behind them, they left being slaves to Pharaoh behind them. They followed Moses. They followed their leader. They stepped out in faith. They stepped down into the Red Sea. It parted for them. They walked through it. They came out in a new way of living on the other side. And yet, as we know, the other side, they kept wanting to go back to the way things used to be, even though all they did was complain about how things used to be when they got out here and they weren't trusting in the Lord anymore, they wanted to go back to what was comfortable, and that really in a nutshell is, is the essence of wanting to go back to our old life, we don't trust God to lead us, that's why it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll set your path straight we get out here and we're in a new land and all of a sudden we start to doubt whether God's going to continue to lead us and what he said to israel he says to all of us i didn't bring you out in the wilderness to let you die out here i didn't bring you out of egypt to bring you to a new way of living to let you die over here i will never leave you i will never forsake you i am with you no matter how difficult it is to live the christian life in the environment that you're in i will not forsake you I didn't give you a spirit of timidity, but of one of power and might. We can turn the world upside down if you just trust me. If you just believe in me. If you just live accordingly. Stop going back to leeks and onions and all the garbage that you were going through in Egypt. They were out here complaining all the time. All they did was complain about leeks and onions. That's all they ate. Leeks and onions. Leeks and onions. Hey, how are we going to make it today? I don't know. Let's make it soup. Okay, what are you going to do now? Let's, let's fry it up. Leeks and onions. That's all it is. They complained all the time. Then God sets them free. They're out here and they're out following them and they're complaining about the fact that, you know what? Hey, God, we're sick and tired of eating manna, which was bread. Manna means what's this in Hebrew. It started raining bread and they said, what is this? That's manna. And that's what it was. What is, what's this? They were having what's this. Every day they're eating what's this. Then they start complaining about eating what's this every day. So then they started to get... Then, then God sent them quail, and they quail fell out of heaven. And then they were eating meat every day. And then you know what they did? Then they complained about meat. They complained about bread. They complained about meat. And you know what they said about the meat? At least in Egypt, we had leeks and onions. <laughs> what, are we stupid or something? That's the way we are as believers, though. We start to follow the Lord, and then all we do is complain. What's wrong with us? So we go, let's go back to the way things used to be. At least we could do some of this stuff over here. So what are we going to say? Should we continue to sin so a grace may increase? No, what are we thinking? How can we who have been baptized under Christ's death continue to live as if we haven't? The identification with Jesus Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit of God. We've been born again. The Spirit of God changes our heart. We're quickened. We're made alive. Titus 3, Jesus said you've got to be born again. Hey, when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we're new creatures. All things pass away. Everything becomes new. Man, it's a new way of living. And it's exciting. He's saying, why would you want to go back to Egypt? Why do you want to go back to the way it used to be? You, you forget how miserable you used to be. And the longer we walk with the Lord, sometimes that temptation to go back and see if it was really as bad as we thought it was, we want to go back there again. But he said, don't go back there. We've been identified with his death. See, baptism is basically, there's an identity that takes place when you trust in Christ, we're identified or baptized with him. 
we enter into the ground with him, we're buried with him, so to speak, and three days later we're raised from the dead with him and we're to live according to the life that he now gives us. The problem we have with baptism is that people in the world we live in today think it's some external thing. If you're baptized, it makes you right with God. Before I was a Christian, people would say, when did you become a Christian? My first answer was, well, I was baptized as a baby. I went to some kind of church, and I did this, I did that, I did the other thing. See, we think if we do stuff, that somehow it's going to make us right with God. And it doesn't. Probably the best story I've ever heard about this is, there was this whole idea of being baptized to somehow be right with God externally. God says, no, you've got to be baptized. Your heart has to be baptized. And then you're externally baptized to identify with what took place in your life, internally. But this external baptism thing says a drunk stumbled along a baptismal service on a Sunday afternoon down by the river. He proceeds to stumble down in the water, stands next to the minister. The minister turns, notices the old drunk man and says, Mister, are you ready to find Jesus? The drunk looks back and says, Yes, I am. Minister dunks him under the water, holds him, pulls him right back up and says, Mister, have you found Jesus? The drunk says, No, I didn't. Minister dunks him again, holds him a little bit longer this time. Brings him up and says, Now, brother, have you found Jesus? He says, No, I didn't. Disgusted, the minister holds the man underwater for about 30 seconds this time. Brings him up and demands, For the grace of God, man, have you found Jesus yet? And the old drunk wipes his eyes and he's got tears in his eyes and he says, No, are you sure this is where he fell in? <laughs> That's the world we live in. You know, it's like we're, we're trying to make somebody find Jesus. You can't force somebody underwater and say, now, if you, hey, but you, we laugh about that, but for centuries the church would take people and say, be baptized or we'll kill you. That's a part of church history. If you don't go to church, we're going to kill you. If you're not baptized, we're going to kill you. I mean, and, and Jesus said, come unto me because of a broken heart. Come unto me because you want to come to me. We can't force anybody to come to faith in Jesus Christ but we sure can live our life in a point where we're so attractive that they want to know about Jesus. See, only faith in Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead can save a person from the consequences and the condemnation of God for sin. External baptism is a public identification with what has happened in our heart. We are baptized externally because Jesus said to make a public declaration of what God has done in your heart and baptism is the way that we do that. When we go down to the beach and, and praise God, 40 some of you signed up to do that who have come to faith in Christ but haven't been baptized externally yet as an outward identification with Jesus. That's a celebration. And we do it publicly because we want everybody around us to know. The last time that we did it, we were at the beach and people were walking up saying, what's going on here? What are you guys doing? You know, what are you looking for? <laughs> but, but it's like, hey, what's going on? Hey, we don't, this is a baptism service. Well, what's that mean? Hey, it means that that person right there has put his or her faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And in obedience, they're being baptized. And they're going down into the water that signifies being identified with his death. And they come back up and they're raised in the newness of life. And when we go into the water, we leave our old self there. We leave Adam there. We leave death there. We leave sin there. And we come up and we're raised in the newness of life. And now we walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. Man, that's exciting stuff. And all the people that are there are going, wow, what's that all about and you know what this is what it's about god loves people and jesus christ when we come to faith in him changes lives and we're never the same because of it and if we are the same before we went into water as we come out afterwards then there's nothing going on in our heart that god has done it's all something that you've done on your own 
It's like Moody said once, he was, Dwight Moody was doing a revival in Chicago, and a year later they were following up on the responses to those who, quote, put their faith and trust in Christ. And the gal who was the editor of the newspaper was following him, walking down the street and went to this alleyway, and there was a drunk that was over there, and she looked and said, Moody, do you remember that guy? He's one of your converts. And you know what he said? You're right, he must be one of mine, because he's not one of God's. Because God doesn't leave us where we were. He brings us to where he wants us to go. We walk in the newness of life. The second word that we're looking at. You know, a great illustration. Read it sometime. Lazarus, John chapter 11. Lazarus was dead. He was in the tomb for four days. He was dead. Dead, stinky dead. Wrapped up, bound up, grave cloths. He stank. Four days he was dead. Jesus came, and they said, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. And he said, you know what, do you believe that he'll raise in the resurrection of the dead? And she said, Lord, I believe that he'll raise one day at the resurrection of the dead. And he said, you know what, do you believe in me? I am the resurrection and the life. And even though you die, you shall live. Do you believe that? And she said, I believe you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And he went up to demonstrate he was who he claimed to be. All the signs that Jesus did were to validate his ministry, to validate his person, to verify that he was who God claimed he was through Scripture, the Savior of the world. And he came up to the grave and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And it's a good thing he said Lazarus. Because think about it. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, having been dead for four days, rose from the dead. He walked to the door and he said, That was in that New York, Brooklyn edition again. I'm assuming because that's how they're like, You know, because everyone's standing around going, Oh! You know, and he's like, And Jesus said, Loose him. Cut all that stuff off of him, all the wrappings and the bindings and everything, and cut him loose. You know what he's saying to you and I who, who put our faith and trust in him? He cuts us loose. We're not bound by the old way of living. We're not bound by sin anymore. He's neutralized it. He's taken the power away from it. He cut us loose and set us free so we can live our life. And let me ask you something. Do you think for a moment that Lazarus ever missed that grave? Think about it. You think that there's a day you're saying, you know, I kind of missed that tight, restricted thing. Maybe I'll just throw some duct tape on me. I'll guarantee you he never went back there. I'll guarantee if he ever walked back there, all he ever did was as he looked at that tomb, he said, praise God for setting me free from that. And anytime we're in an environment that reminds us of where we used to be, it's a wonderful chance, an opportunity to say, Lord, praise God for setting me free from that. Praise God, I don't want to go back to that. Praise God that, you know what, I was dead in Adam, but now I'm alive in Christ. I'll guarantee you, Lazarus didn't ever miss that grave, never wanted to go back to it. He couldn't wait to get those grave cloths off of him and to walk in the newness of life. And yet so many of us as believers, man, we want to go back to, the, you know, slopping with the pigs. You know, how can anybody who has a son that's lived in the mansion want to go slop with hogs, man? There's a point where all of us got to come to our senses and go, man, you know what? Even my servants, my father's servants are doing better in the big house than I am down here slopping with a bunch of pigs. Second word is reckon. Look at verse 11. Reckon. Back to Romans 6, verse 11. 
Some translations say consider like minus says, so even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Remember the word reckon means to put it on our account. To put it on our account. To reckon it. To consider it. To consider what God is saying is a done deal. When I was a, when I was a young person there was a television show that I used to like to watch and the guy who starred in it was Robert Blake. He used to be on Spanking Our Gang, right? But he grew up and he played on this television show and it was called Beretta. Now, Beretta was kind of a, you know, a tough guy. It kind of it had that you know, approach to humanity um, that I can identify with, I can understand what he's saying. But one of his favorite lines was, we would go to somebody and warn them about doing something they were thinking of doing. And he said, if you do what you're thinking of doing, then I will do what I promise you I'll do. And then he would say this, and you can put that in the bank. And then he kind of poke him. Now, what he's saying was, if you do what I tell you not to do, I will do what I promise you to do. And you can bank on that. You can consider that carefully, and you can consider living your life accordingly. Now, here's what God says. He says, Chuck, I want you to reckon, and it's not that southern expression. I've got a lot of southern friends. Well, I reckon we'll go ahead and do that. Well, he's not talking about that. That's not I suppose. He's saying you better take this into account, and that's this that when God promises something or tells us something, we can live our life in the present as if it's already happened, even if it's something that's promised for the future. Got it? And that means very simply this. If Adam and Eve had believed God, when God says, if you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die, if, he would, if they would have believed in the present, the consequences of the future, if they disobeyed him, it would have changed the way they lived their life. Right? Everyone follow this? Okay. So what God is saying is this, Chuck, if you can just believe in the present, what I've already said has taken place, then it'll affect the way you live your life today. Got it? Reckon it. Consider it. Live like it. Give you an illustration from a business standpoint. Uh, you know, we're in the construction business, and, you know, we do work, and sometimes there's lead times to buy material or equipment or whatever, and I give you examples sometimes how it works. I'll have a guy call me and say, hey, well, you guys are going to do that job for us, but I want to give you the heads up on it. Uh, we'll send a letter of intent, or we're going to get some information out to you, but I want to give you the heads up on it because if there's any lead time items, I want you to act upon what I'm saying today so you can get that ordered, even if it's six to eight weeks out or four weeks out or ten weeks out, whatever. Take care of business today so that we don't lose any time. Now, the letter of intent may come a week or two later. Sometimes it may, they may never even send it, just send a contract a month later or whatever, but the point is that if I take into consideration what's being said about something that will happen in the future or something that's already happened, and in this particular case, they had already met in a meeting and decided we would be the contractor to do the job, so it's something that happened in the past tense. Now they're telling me today in the present. And what God is saying is this, Chuck, this has happened in the past tense. You were identified with Jesus Christ. You were baptized with him. You died to sin. You now rose again. You were with him at the resurrection. You rose with him, and you're even seated with him in the heavenlies as far as Ephesians 2 is concerned. And we're to do the work that God has prepared before ahead of time for us to do in the present. So all of that's taken care of, but it affects the way we live our life today. So when somebody says, Chuck, go ahead and do this, I act upon that today, knowing that it had already taken place at some time in the past, and knowing that some other aspects of it will take place again in the future. Now some people will say, well, that's foolish to go ahead and act upon it in the present, because you better make sure you've got a letter of intent, or you better make sure you've got a contract, or you better make sure you're not liable. And all that I say to you is this, hey, you know what, I act upon the word of people today in many cases, because I know them, they're trustworthy, they're reliable and yet they're not perfect, they're fallible. My point is this. 
if we will act upon the fallibility of human beings in the present because of something they said has taken place in the past or will take place in the future, how much more so should we act in the present upon the very Word of God who is perfect and cannot lead us astray? You follow that logic? That's what he's saying. And he's saying is this. You have died with Christ. You have raised with Him. You are to walk in the newness of life. And even as we live here on this earth, we're seated with Him in the heavenlies, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. So it should affect the way we live our life. And the last thing is this. And it has to do with the idea of yielding. Romans 6, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not master over you, for you are not under law, but you're under grace. Do you notice that? The word yield also is uh, translated present. Therefore, because of what we just learned is true, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. It's a positive, it's a negative. The negative is this. God is assuming something about us. <clears throat> and the assumption is this, that we will continue to live as we used to live until we learn how to live in a new way of living. We don't know any better. I was 20-some years old when I asked Jesus Christ into my life. I had 20-some years of history of how I did things, how I thought about things, how I reacted to things, the things that I did. They were all part of, my, my, of who I am. So there was a history there. God's assumption is, Chuck, don't continue to go on living like you used to because I won't know any other way to live. I'm going to continue to live like I used to until God shows me how he wants me to live in a new way of living. So it's just natural that we would continue to live as we used to live but he's saying, stop living that way and now start living this way. And the only way we know the difference between living that way and living this way is that, one, we have the Holy Spirit in our life now who teaches us truth, guides us in truth, convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But even more wonderful than that, as wonderful as that is, we've got the Word of God that's God's game plan that says, this is the way I want you to live now. Follow it. You used to live this way, now live this way. Lay that aside, start to live this direction. But notice what he says. He says, stop presenting yourself or stop putting yourself in a position to sin. Let me just make something very clear as we wrap this all up. All too often, we play around with things that make us weak and then act surprised when we sin. Duh. You know what I'm saying? Here's the deal. Let's get very specific in closing so that nobody misses this. If certain friends from this life continue to lead you in a direction that's in opposition to God and to do things that are wrong before God, guess what? You stop associating with them. As you live for God, what we found in our life is, as we live for God and died to sin, those people, we didn't even have to cut off our relationship. They didn't want to be around us anymore. You know what I'm saying? It was like, hey, you know what? Oh, going to church again? Eh, I think we're going to go get drunk again. Oh, okay. Oh, you're going to go do this? Yeah, we're going to go to a Bible study. Well, you know what? I think we're going to just go get high. <laughs> uh, whatever, you know? It's like whatever they were doing, it's like, well, we don't want to do what you're doing. But there's a point where those people say, why don't you come with us? And you've got to say, you know what? I can't do that anymore. Why? Because I, I, I'm dead to that life, man. I, I'm, I'm new in Christ. I've got a whole new way of living. It's a great way of life, man. It's an abundant life. I don't have all the things. You know, it's kind of like, it's like, you know, if, if drinking 
or going somewhere that causes you to sin, then you know what? You've got to stop going to the bars. You've got to stop hanging around people that do drugs. You know, what's wonderful is, is that, you know what? I, you know, I, I've said goodbye. When you put your faith and trust in Christ and you don't go that direction anymore, you say goodbye to things like hugging the toilet seat. It's awesome. You know, I get sick. You get a flu every now and then. But I'm telling you what, man, I, tell, I spent a lot of time. I, was, I, I named my toilet, you know. We, we had a relationship, you know. But, um, but you, don't, you don't have to do that anymore. You say goodbye to that. That's awesome. Say goodbye to hangovers. Say goodbye to headaches. You say goodbye to stupid things that you said and problems that you had and arguments that you got into and fights that were a result of getting drunk and stupid. You say goodbye to all that. Say, oh, I'm going to miss that. What? I don't miss any of that. You know, if certain friends cause you to sin, you're going to have to disassociate from them. If certain movies and TV shows cause you to lust, guess what? Stop going to them, stop renting them. If you go on the internet and you're involved in pornography and all the rest of the stuff that's causing you to sin, then you know what? Then don't go online. And don't close your door and don't lock it and don't shut it and don't hide from people. If you don't have anything to hide, open your door and anybody can walk in at any time and see what you're doing and what's going on. You know, if you're greedy or money causes you to stumble, don't be the treasurer. You know what I'm saying? Don't, don't handle the funds. Judah should have never been treasurer of the group. You know, if gluttony is your problem, don't go to the buffet line. We went out the other night, man. It was like the first time we ever been to this particular restaurant. It was a buffet line, and it was like a herd of cattle stampeding in there. They're the biggest people I've ever seen. Just knocking all the little people over. It's like if that's your problem, don't go to the buffet line. You know, if anger is something that you struggle with, then don't put yourself in situations that's going to lead you to sin. Greatest illustration. I have a friend who's a pastor who is a very competitive person. We used to play basketball together. He used to just pound people. He'd post up low and he'd start throwing shack bows. Boom! There'd be people flying all over the place. Boom! Praise God, brother. You know, that's how... And I'm thinking, it's kind of like, have you found Jesus yet? It's like, and, and it was like, man, he was just, and there were people leaving the church and he was a pastor at because he was beating them all up. <laughs> Finally, one day he goes, you know, he, he hadn't been there for a while. I said, hey, I haven't seen you playing basketball for a while. He goes, you know, I really was convicted about it, you know, because I can't control my emotions. I get so competitive, I'm beating people up. Probably not real conducive to being Christ-like. You know, and, but what he's saying, I like and I appreciate. I had a business associate this week who uh, we were promised a certain product would be ready by a certain day. And the guy, they, they kept kind of telling us what we wanted to hear. You know, it'll be ready by the end of the week. Ready by the end of the week. What's the end of the week? Hey, it's not ready. Sorry. Why did you just tell us that to begin with? Well, we weren't sure. You know, we we're buying time. Say, so, well, my customer is really upset because there's people moving in the building. And now we don't have the unit in there and they're all hot and sweaty and they're moving in this weekend and we're in big trouble. He goes, well, you can tell your customer to call me if you want. So I pass it on. The customer says, if you want, you can call him, but the bottom line is it won't be ready until Monday. And I love his spiritual maturity because he said, you know what? I'm not going to call him. So why not? He goes, you know why? Because nothing good is going to come out of that phone call. See, that's spiritual maturity. That's growing in our faith. That's recognizing our weak points and staying away from those. That's not presenting ourselves as instruments to sin, but of righteousness. The point is simple. Stop putting yourself in a position to sin. But put yourself in a position to do what's right before God. There's no better counsel than I can leave you with at this point, and we'll take a look at Romans 7 next week, at this point than this. If any man wishes to follow me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. 
There is no greater counsel than any of us can have than the counsel of denying ourself to live for God. The essence of the Christian life is summarized, as I said, not your will, Lord, today be done. Not my will, Lord, today be done, but yours. The legacy that every one of us as men should leave for our wives and for our children is a legacy of denying ourselves and doing what's right before God. To deny ourselves and to do as I do, not as I should, but as I do. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ. For though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, he humbled himself, and he took on the form of a bondservant. And he became obedient, obedient even to death under the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. Have this attitude in yourself. Don't consider yourself more important than others, but put others first. There is no greater legacy that any man can leave than that of being a man who lives a life that denies himself and puts his family, puts his God and his family and his children and his friends and his community before him. Not my will today, Lord, be done, but yours. There's too many selfish men in our culture who walk from their responsibilities instead of doing what's right before God and doing what's right before others. Do as we do, not just as we should. The second thing is picking up our cross daily. To publicly identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. To be man enough that the world knows that I love Jesus. I'm not ashamed of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of Him at all. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. Jesus Christ changed my life and I'm not ashamed to tell anybody about it. I'll pick up my cross daily and identify myself with Him. He laid down His life for me. That's the least that I can do in return is to take a stand for Him. And that's the legacy I want my children to see. I want my kids to grow up in a home where Jesus Christ was publicly acclaimed and given glory and given honor and preeminence in our home. I don't want my son or my daughters to be ashamed of Jesus. I want them to learn from me what it means to take a stand in a hostile environment in a world that hates Jesus Christ. But I want them to know what it means to stand and to live for Him. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in our bodies. And the last thing is this, to follow Him. To follow Him as I do and not as I should. So easy to say, do this. Do as I say, but not as I do. We need more men who tell people around us, do as I do. Walk the way I walk, following my footsteps. Because if you do, I'm following the Lord. And if you follow me and I'm following Him, guess what? We're all going to be okay. That's the kind of men that God needs. Are you one of those guys? If not, what are you waiting for? Father, we just thank You. We love You. We just thank You for Your Word. We just thank You for the newness of life. We just thank You that we're raised with Jesus Christ, that we're dead to sin and we're alive to Him. God, may Jesus' death on the cross not be a waste for us in this life. That we would glorify you in the way that we live our life. Reflect who you are so that the world will be attracted, not just to us, but more importantly, to you through us. Lord, we just thank you and we just praise you. We thank you give us the power to live that kind of life. That you would never tell us to do something that's not possible. So when you say stop presenting ourselves, we can turn to you through Jesus Christ and have the power and the strength to turn from sin and to turn to you to turn from the old way of living and to turn to a new way of life. 
God, we just thank you for freeing us from the bondage of sin, the sin that used to master us, to free us from all the turmoil and trouble and garbage that went along with it. We just praise you that we have a new way of living. And as Jesus said, and it's abundant life. It's a wonderful life. It's a life that's filled with peace and joy and patience and confidence and self-control and all of those things and love. God, we just thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.